You are listening to Shining Star Community Church, English Ministries Sunday Message. Please visit us at www.shiningstar.life. little the very first song I learned was Jesus loves me this I know for the Bible tells me so now you all know the song it goes little ones to him belong they are weak but he is strong and then it goes yes Jesus loves me yes Jesus loves me yes Jesus loves me for the Bible tells me so very good now this is a song or rather a hymn that was written in the mid 18th century by a woman named Anna Bartlett Warner. Like legend has it that she spoke these words as a comforting poem to a dying child, and then her older sister then wrote those words in her book called Say and Seal. And I think it's a wonderful song that reminds us of Jesus' love for us. And that really helped me as a young child understand that love. Our text today really begins with perhaps the most popular verse in the Bible, aside from maybe Jesus wept. And like me for you, uh, and for me, this verse is where we first learned the great truth of God's love for us. And that's John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world. Now, maybe even with all the difficulty memorizing Scripture, this is one of the few verses that we do know well, and we can recite it. It's a, it's a verse that we teach our children. In fact, in our Christian books that we read to our kids, John 3.16 happens to show up in every one of those books. It is a popular verse. But it's not only popular in Christian books or in the literature that we give to our children, but it's, it's beginning to get a lot of traction in the media and really the entire world. Tim Tebow, do you guys recall that game? He threw that 80-yard touchdown pass for a win over the Pittsburgh Steelers. And then people, knowing that Tim Tebow was a Christian, began to immediately connecting his faith with his stats. He had that game, in that game, 316 passing yards, 316. And his 10 completions averaged, that's right, 31.6 yards. Coincidence? I think not. Well, joking aside, people are obviously obsessed with this, and they're connecting this, and they're saying how oh, this is from God. It's popular, and people start asking questions about what does John 3.16 even mean? Non-Christians start asking questions and start exploring even Scripture. The popular clothing chain Forever 21 even has John 3.16 on every shopping bag. On the bottom of each cup at Sweet Frog, you'll find John 3.16. For those who don't know, Sweet Frog is a Christian uh, dessert or frozen yogurt place. Frog stands for fully rely on God. So, okay, all that to say, we know this verse. But here's where I want to caution you all. Because this verse is so well known, some of us kind of will enter this sermon or enter, the, enter, enter this text with our own kind of understanding of what it means. And so, really, what I'm saying is, with great humility, I ask that we all concentrate our minds with an openness to hear uh, of the powerful and, I believe, a refreshing truth of what, of what God desires to say to us through this text, okay? So, today, I got a couple points that I want to make today. My first is this, is that God, He loves sinners. Say to your neighbor that God loves you. Okay, so the first issue we face in this text is 
how we should understand the statement, God so loved the world. And I think that's, that the way it's been understood and taught, maybe like Sunday schools, when I was little at least, was the way that we have all come to understand it. But in actuality, it's not really what God intends for us to hear. Okay, so let me explain for a second. So when we think of this verse, we might think, God so loved the world, meaning God loves each and every person in this whole wide world, this vast and great big world, this great and big population of 7 billion people on earth, this mass of humanity that is the world, and God, He loves every single one of them. And how lovely is that? Now here's the thing. There is some truth to that. After all, I mean, the Jews who were once trained to think that God's love was exclusively theirs is now a love for the whole world. It's now a love that was extended to all people from every tribe and nation. It's a love that was even extended to those despised Gentiles, even to those vile Samaritans. So yes, God loves the world. And it's also true that God, He loves us personally, not in some kind of general principle way. But here's the thing. Just understanding the measure of God's love in contrast to the vastness and the greatness and the size of humanity, it still does not communicate the truth of this verse. Now I want to say that again, okay? Understanding the measure of God's love in contrast to the greatness of the world does not communicate the radical nature and truth of this text because when we add up the love for every person on earth, all we have is just a bigger love. When we add it up to the billions of people that have existed, that exist today and will exist later, all it describes is the love for the finite number of people. Granted, it's a big finite number, but it's still a finite number that still doesn't do justice in describing the infinite love of God. And here's a warning, okay? When we approach God's love this way, this greatness approach, this the size of the world approach to describe the, the great love of God, it'll actually lend itself to distortions. And how is that? Because our emphasis of focus becomes about how God's love for everyone individually and God's love for every single person on earth begins, uh, it begins to start addressing the value of each one of us. And then we start talking about the beauty about that God must see within us. And we start talking about how I am worth it. And then we start talking about just ourselves. And we begin to esteem ourselves. And that leads to legalism because then we start saying, well, surely I am loved. How could I not be loved by God? Because of all that I've done for God. Because I am His people. Because of all the things that I have going for myself. Surely I'm blessed because of my sacrificial giving. And maybe right now we're all thinking, so what if God loves us individually? So what if that's the point that I see from this text? Is it bad to lift myself up? Is it bad to see worth in myself and in others? Well, here's the point. The danger in this understanding of God loving you is that our focus becomes about glorying not in the love of God, but in the love of ourselves. We start glorying in our self-importance and in our self-worth and in our individual rights. And so this verse becomes a verse about the greatness of the human soul or the greatness of the human spirit rather than the greatness of the spirit of God. That needs to be our focus. He needs to be our center, not us. And no, I'm not splitting hairs here because to understand this verse correctly is to understand the basis of the gospel message. And the basis of the gospel message does not start with me, but starts with him. So hear me out when I say, God, he loves sinners. 
Now, maybe right now we're still kind of confused about why this is important. Well, let me, let me talk about who God is for a second. God is the one who dwells in unapproachable light. He is holy. God is so pure that wickedness and evil cannot look upon him. God is the one who dwells in the majesty and the glory of complete and absolute righteousness and goodness and fiery purity and stainless perfection. You know, before God are angels, and these are cherubims and seraphims that continually cry out for all eternity, holy, holy, holy. That's God. We're talking about a God who needs nothing and needs no one. He's so perfectly complete in himself that he is now affected by any action of his creatures. This is a God who sits in majestic perfection on his heavenly throne and does whatever he pleases. And this perfection, pure and holy, magnificent, righteous love, this amazing God loves the world? Now maybe you're thinking, well, okay, God is love and so he naturally loves the world. Uh Uh-uh. Now let me describe what the world is here. You know, the Apostle John, he tells us throughout the gospel what the world is. The world is synonymous with all that is evil and noisy and disgusting and unholy. There is absolutely nothing in this world that can attract God's love. There is absolutely nothing here in this world that can even come close to justify the love of God. Now remember, we're told in the Bible that the world is something that we as disciples were called to overcome, Right? That's from John 16, 33. The Bible also tells us that the world is something that we as Christians are forbidden to love in 1 John 2. The world is not something to be embraced. Is that something to be cherished? There's nothing lovely about it. It's something to overcome. It's something to be, we're called to, we're called, we're, we're forbidden to love. But why? Because in 1 John 2, 16, it reads this. For all that is in the world the desires of the flesh and desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but it is from the world. You see that? The the desires of the flesh, desires of the eyes, the pride of life, that's from the world. You want to know something about this world that we live in? Just pick up the newspaper or or open up any news website. Go on CNN. In fact, go on Facebook. I have on my post, on my newsfeed, at least two families whose children are dying of cancer. This is the world. Try talking to someone and asking their story. Yeah, they might say, oh yeah, I've done this and i accomplished this. But quite honestly, if you really, really start digging deep behind the tears and cries, you'll hear stories of rape, sexual abuse, domestic violence, divorce, racism, theft, depression, suicide, and more. This is the world. Yeah, the world is beautiful at times for about 10 seconds as the sun rises and as the sun sets. But you know, everything else that happens here in this world tells us one thing. This world is rotten to its core. Because the Bible tells us that this world essentially partners with the flesh, partners with the devil as enemies of God. Do you see this point that this text is trying to make? It's not talking about the greatness of God's love in terms of how many we are and how great we are. It's talking about the greatness of God's love in terms of how wretched we are. That's how amazing the love of God is. That he would love us. We are wretched. We are the world. We are sin. And yet, this amazing, perfect, holy God would love us. That should make you scratch your head. 
Even the school shootings of our poor children, it frightens me. Every day as I drop off my kids, my prayers are no longer simply, God, let them have fun and let them make friends and let them learn a lot. Now it's a prayer on, oh Lord, protect them. Defend them from the enemy, both physical and spiritual. Guard the doors of the school. And yet this verse tells us that God is even willing to love those vile murderers of innocent children, those wretched and wicked, demented folks who go praying on the weak. This is the radical truth. Yes, even God loves them because they are the world. And that's what makes this verse so radical because that love, this type of love, tells me more about who God is than if I just simply thought that God loved everyone. You know, God's love, we we all got to understand this, is incomprehensible. That he would love a sinner so much that he would give his one and only son. You know, a saving grace relationship, it does not begin with us simply saying, God just loves me, this I know. It begins with the understanding and confessing of knowing your own wretchedness of your heart. Knowing that God, he knows you so fully, that you're so just wretched. There are things in your life no one could ever know. Secret sins are so too vile that you would feel ashamed of even whispering them in the quietness of your own mind, but it begins there. It begins with the admission of our own guilt. This admission is what will be the first step of us ever finding peace with the Lord, of ever being clean again. That's why the gospel is the good news. For God so loved you. For God so loved you, the world, the sinner. Okay, so how do we respond then? This is my last point. Trust Him and you will live. Now, Love of God, as demonstrated by the giving of His Son, it demands a response, okay? There's something that we got to do. But what's that? So there are two possible responses outlined here in, this, uh, in these verses. The first is this. The first is the response that comes naturally to us when we're guilty. You know, as a child, you always kind of knew when you were in trouble, right? Even before your parents said anything, like you just knew. It was, it was maybe like the tone of your, of your mother or father calling you down for dinner uh, there was like a heaviness in the air, right? And so you just know when you're in trouble. And it makes you want to run away. It makes you want to hide or at least kind of dawdle at the top of the stairs because you're too afraid to come down. And even if you're like completely starving, right? Once you hear that voice and you hear that tone and suddenly like you've lost your appetite. The idea is the same for us here. You see, when we're guilty, which we all are, by the way, all we want to do is run and head for cover. Because that's exactly what verses 19 20 reads. It says, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. You know, there are several words throughout this section that describes the natural response that we, that we, um, <clears throat> that we have when we're in sin. Verse 18, it says, we don't believe. Verse 19 says, we love darkness. And verse 20 says, we hate the light and will not come to the light. And so the result of this natural response, according to verse 18, is that we stand condemned. You see, in the book of Romans, chapter 1, God, he speaks to people pushing down or suppressing or holding down truth. It's the idea that when we are faced with light, that, that will expose us, right? We don't want that. So we prefer and we choose darkness. Essentially, people choose darkness, and it is in that darkness that condemnation lies. 
And so people are shutting themselves up to that darkness. They cut themselves off from the light because they don't want to disturb their wrongdoings. Like they revel in their sin. They enjoy the flesh. They love their darkness. And so it's in that way that they condemn themselves. Look, I think a lot of people here will say, well, Pastor David, come on, like, let's go a little bit easy with this message here because I don't love darkness. I don't enjoy lying. I don't like wicked things. Like, how corrupt do you think we are? I, I don't revel in injustices that I see. I don't enjoy evil and sin. In fact, I wish I could stop those things. Like, I, I want to I wanna improve society. I want to help people. I don't want to stay in darkness. And I get that. I get what you're saying. But here's how we can gauge where we're at with all this, okay? So fine, I'll concede. You say you hate darkness. But tell me this, or rather ask yourself this. What happens when God gets a little too close? What happens when God sends his people deeper into your life? What happens when we're faced with the option of praying or not praying? We would probably choose not praying, wouldn't we? Or studying Bible, not studying Bible. We probably wouldn't study the Bible. Loving our enemies or hating them. We would probably much rather hate them than love them. What about prioritizing God's worship or not? No, we'd rather go see that game than come to church at 2 o'clock p.m. and worship. What happens when the Bible and when the church and when a Christian friend and when a believing family member and when your pastor or life group leader or life group member shines the light of Christ a little bit too brightly on you? What is then your natural response? You get what I'm saying here? Look, naturally, we're all nocturnal creatures. Like, we like the security of the darkness because it feels safe when no one else can really see what we're really like. But it's choosing that type of life. It's choosing that type of darkness. It's shutting yourself in that darkness. That is the way of condemnation. And it's a straight path to death. We're putting ourselves in there. Do you want life? Do you want peace? Do you want to know the fullness of of God, don't resist the gentle urgings of trusted and faithful people that God has placed that God has placed in your life. Don't roll your eyes, okay, at people who seem to be reaching out to you. Don't shake your head or shake your fist at the Word of God as it convicts you. Don't close yourself off from the church just because you had some bad experience before, or maybe someone gossiped, maybe someone slandered your name. this church and the people around you, God is calling us to reach into your life and to be that light. Ask yourself, are you uncomfortable with it right now? Do you run away from people who contact you? People who want to hold you accountable? Do not run into the darkness. But you know, there's another response, and that's the response of life. I want to unpack it for us for a second. In verse 16, it says, whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. And it says it again in verse 18, whoever believes in him is not condemned. Now, believing and faith are the same thing here, okay? Because faith is a noun, believe is the verb. Apostle John, he prefers the verb to believe. In fact, he uses it 98 times in his gospel. So this, this is what he's doing. But like we learned last week, believing is not just like mentally agreeing with Christ. It's not just some intellectual understanding. 
Okay, just because you've read through Genesis Revelation and that you've read through the gospel does not mean that you just believe just because you believe that Christ existed or that you believe that you must actively entrust yourself to him. Look at verse 21 for a second. It says, whoever does what is true comes to the light. It's not enough that we just believe what we must act, but we have to act on that belief. And so that's how we do truth. Truth and faith is not some theory for Christians to just to hold on to. It is what we do. We do truth. We do faith. We live out truth. We live out faith. And that's what true belief is. So what does that mean for us practically then? Does that mean that we need to earn our salvation? Of course not. You guys know that's not true. To do the truth or to come into the light means to put our fears of exposure away. You see, we have no reason to hide anymore. Because when we come to Christ, that means we entrust ourselves to Him completely. And if we believe that He no longer condemns us, then who cares what others might think? See, that should give us freedom to be transparent. That should give us freedom and peace to be vulnerable with one another. You see, God, He loves you. You are the world, which means that you are a sinner. But He loves you despite your sin, in spite of it. We can either run from Him and cower away in the darkness, choosing condemnation, or we can run to Him and allow His light to expose the sinfulness of our wretched hearts. But you see, it is in that repentance is where His truth will turn to active faith in our lives. You know, I, that's why I think, and I'm constantly promoting this, life groups are such an amazing, a fantastic way to live it out. Because it's more than just a weekly gathering, fellowship. It is the grace of God where He gives us a chance for people from all walks, from all spiritual level, wherever they are, maybe they're new believers, where maybe they grew up in the church, but for everyone to come together who acknowledge Christ as their Lord, to take that step of faith together and truly put the gospel message into practice. And where you can actually learn and grow in accountability and be vulnerable and let the light of Christ shine brightly into your life. You know, my encouragement to us all is stop running from the Lord. With whatever darkness you might be toying with, addiction, all that stuff, bring it all to Him. And yeah, exposing the brokenness of your heart, it's going to sting. It's going to hurt. It's going to take time. But by doing so, you'll see that through the exposure will come the healing grace of God whose Son died for your sins so that you will have life. Open your heart, open your mind, open your life to Him, to His people. Trust Christ and you will live. Amen? Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for just giving us this amazing opportunity. You've been faithful to us despite our faithlessness. You have encouraged us 
You have led us despite our disobedience. Father, we're thankful that you have given us such grace, the grace to repent, to grace, the grace to open your word and hear from you. We pray that you will continue to pour out your spirit upon us, that you will lead people here right now who are broken and who are perhaps a bit fearful of opening their lives to you and to one another here. But God, help us to trust in your word today. Help us to believe in your promises. That God, through that exposure, you will lead us into truth and into life. And you will give us freedom from fear of man. You will give us freedom from condemnation. Help us to trust in you so that we would live. Brothers and sisters, I want to give you guys an opportunity just to pray and just to meditate on what you've heard today. Take a moment and lift up your hearts and I pray for the spirit of vulnerability right now as you seek the Lord. Okay, let's pray.